me that, you know, we just continue as we were, and it's like we're rearranging the chairs on the Titanic. And we need to do something different than that. And, um, Lord willing, tonight and beginning each Sunday night, we plan to have a time of prayer for our nation. Um, we may vary how we have the time of prayer, and I know that that isn't what we've normally done, but drastic times demand different means than what we've normally done. And um, it is important for us to realize what God has done in our nation, what is going on in our nation, and what our responsibility is. This last week um, marked the, um, the death of three great individuals died April 16th, April 15th, and April 17th. And their lives speak volumes to us. On April 17th, 1790, the son of a poor candle maker died. He was the 15th of 17 children. He was apprenticed as a printer and published a popular almanac. He retired at the age of 42, and then he taught himself five languages, invented the rocking chair, a stove, bifocal glasses, the lightning rod. Incidentally, I read today that eight million lightning bolts strike the earth every day. I mentioned that to my family, and they said, who counts that? I don't know, but it's an interesting fact, all right? It, maybe it is a fact. But his name was Benjamin Franklin. Franklin was instrumental in pointing our nation to God. Um, he, when the French and Spain were raiding the British colonies, he raised up Pennsylvania's first volunteer militia and proposed a general fast which was published in the Pennsylvania Gazette. It read, this was in 1747, We have thought fit to appoint a day of fasting and prayer, exhorting all, both ministers and people, to join with one accord in the most humble and fervent supplications that Almighty God would mercifully interpose and still the rage of war among the nations and put a stop to the effusion of Christian blood. So he called for a day of prayer and fasting. This was before our nation was ever in 1747. Franklin was instrumental in printing George Whitfield's sermons, who God used to bring a, a spiritual awakening. Um, he attended Whitfield's meetings that were held on the Philadelphia's courthouse steps 
they estimate that 25,000 people were in attendance at those meetings of Whitfield. Franklin um, wrote in his autobiography regarding those meetings, It was wonderful to see the change soon made in the manners of our inhabitants. From being thoughtless or indifferent about religion, it seemed as if all the world were growing religious so that one could not walk through town in the evening without hearing psalms sung and different fam- by different families in the street. In 1747, his proposals relating to the education of youth, he said, history will also afford the frequent opportunities of showing the necessity of public religion from its usefulness to the public. The advantage of the religious character among private persons and the excellency of the Christian religion above all others, ancient or, or modern. He wrote to a friend of his, The worship of God is a duty. The hearing and reading of sermons may be useful. But if men rest in hearing and praying, as too many do, it is as if a tree should value itself on being watered and putting forth leaves, though it never produces any fruit. In a pamphlet that Franklin wrote for Europeans that were interested in coming to America, he wrote this, Atheism is unknown there, speaking of America. Infidelity rare and secret, so that persons may live to a great age in that country without having their piety shocked by meeting with either an atheist or an infidel. And the divine being seems pleased to favor the whole country. <clears throat> in, in his statement as the president or governor of Pennsylvania, he signed the state's first constitution, and he said, Each member before he takes his seat shall make and subscribe the following declaration. I do believe in one God the Creator and the Governor of the universe, the Rewarder of the good and the Punisher of the wicked. And I do acknowledge the Scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be given by divine inspiration. And no further or other religious test shall ever hereafter be required of any civil officer or magistrate in this state. You couldn't get much more. I mean, that's like a doctrinal statement that is given for everyone that served in the Pennsylvania um, legislature. Franklin, as I'm sure you are well aware of, um, when the Constitutional Convention, they were struggling, made the statement along the lines, if a sparrow can't fall to the ground without God knowing it, who are we to think that a nation can be born without God's help? And he said, we need to stop now and, and plead with the divine being to give us wisdom. In, in fact, um, that was a key turning point in, in our history. Um, long before it was um, 
It was even popular. He was leading the charge regarding uh, doing away with slavery, likened it unto the Muslim pirates that that um, kidnapped people and put them into slavery. But Benjamin Franklin was one man that um, clearly and unashamedly um, held forth the Christian beliefs. On April 16, 1859, another man that most of us uh, are probably not familiar with, a French historian, you may have heard me quote him many times before, but Alex de Tocqueville died. He spent nine months in 1835 traveling throughout the United States, down the eastern coast, down through um, the Louisiana area, up through Memphis, um, Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, um, covered up the Great Lakes states into Michigan, on up to Green Bay, Wisconsin. And he wrote, as a result of his nine-month study, he wrote the book Democracy in America, which was published in 1835. And let me just share with you some of his quotes about our land. Upon my arrival in the United States, the religious aspect of the country was the first thing that struck my attention. In France, I had almost always seen the spirit of religion and the spirit of freedom marching in opposite directions. But in, in America, I found they were intimately united and that they reigned in common over the same country. The Americans combined the notions of Christianity and of liberty so intimately in their minds that it is impossible for them to conceive one without the other. They brought with them into the new world a form of Christianity which I cannot better describe than by styling it as a democratic and republican religion. In, in book two of his Democracy in America, he said, Christianity has therefore retained a strong hold on the public mind in America. In the United States, Christianity itself is a fact so irresistibly established that no one undertakes either to attack or to defend it. Think of that. This is in... in 1835, he's saying it is such a stronghold that no one even needs to defend it, let alone attack it. They don't dare do that. It's interesting. In, in 1940, 1840, I'm sorry, he traveled twice to Algeria and studying there. And he said, I studied the Koran a great deal. I came away from that study with the conviction that there have been few religions in the world as deadly to man as that of Mohammed. As far as I can see, it is a principle. It is the principal cause of the decadence so visible today in the Muslim world and no less absurd than the polytheism of old. Its social and political tendencies are, in my opinion, to be feared, and I therefore regard it as a form of decadence rather than a, a form of progress in relation to paganism itself. 
he predicted how Americans would lose their freedom. In 1840, he wrote, I had noted in my stay in the United States that a democratic state of society, similar to the American model, could lay itself open to the establishment of despotism or tyranny with unusual ease. It would debase men without tormenting them. Men, all alike and equal, turned in upon themselves in a restless search for those petty, vulgar pleasures with which they fill their souls. Above all these men stands an immense and protective power. It prefers its citizens to enjoy themselves provided they have only enjoyment in mind. Did you get that? They encourage them to enjoy themselves provided they have only enjoyment in mind. It restricts the activity of the free will within a narrow range and gradually removes autonomy itself from the citizen. So it removes self-governing from the citizen. He continued, Thus the ruling power, having taken each citizen one by one into its powerful grasp and spread its arms over the whole society, covering the surface of social life with a network of petty, complicated, and detailed and uniform rules, it does not break men's wills, but it does soften, bend, and control them. It constantly opposes what actions they perform. It inhibits, represses, drains, snuffs out, dulls so much effort that finally it reduces each nation to nothing more than a flock of timid, hard-working animals with the government as shepherd, as a single, protective, and all-powerful government. Individual intervention is suppressed. That statement, I couldn't think of a better definition. Until nothing more of our society today, until nothing more remains than a flock of timid, hard-working animals with the government as shepherd, the government as a single, protective, and all-powerful government. It's incredible. I mean, that he foresaw this. And today, we have it before us. April 15th of this year marks the 115th anniversary of President Abraham Lincoln's death. You're familiar with um, Lincoln's life and history, but um, as in that fateful day in 1865, we in America again are at spiritual crossroads. As in Lincoln's days and in the biblical days of Nineveh, God is calling the nation to turn. And I believe it's important for us to understand where we are in this. You go back and you look, God sent Jonah to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, to warn of his judgment. You remember the account? The king of Nineveh responded um, in repentance and mourning 
and led the nation in a decree of fasting and prayer and mourning and repentance in the effect that God may have mercy on us and not bring His judgment. Nineveh was such a wicked nation that God was willing to destroy it. And yet when the king called for repentance, the people responded. People follow a leader. And they followed their king to repentance. God had mercy and showed great grace. 150 years later, the prophet Nahum was sent to the same Nineveh to warn it again. This time, Nineveh did not repent. They did not have a king like their prior king. The nation did not repent. And Naaman said in Naaman chapter 2, Though Nineveh of old was like a pool of water, now they flee away. Halt, halt, they cry, but no one turns back. Take spoil of the silver, take spoil of the gold. There is no end of treasure or wealth of every desirable prize. She is empty and desolate, a waste. The heart melts, the knees shake, much pain is on every side, and all their faces are drained of color. That's a sorry picture of the judgment that was brought on Nineveh. As we mentioned, Abraham Lincoln in the 1860s brought a call to repentance very similar to that of Nineveh. The nation was in the middle of the Civil War, which cost 620,000 lives, and the sin of slavery took center stage. Americans had become prosperous reveling in their own strength, neglecting to thank God for their abundance. And in Lincoln's second inaugural address, he stated that the Civil War was God's judgment on America for the sin of slavery. This is a quote of Lincoln from his second inaugural address. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must needs come, but which having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both north and south this terrible war, as the woe due to those by whom the offense came, shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? Fondly do we hope Fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled up by the bondsmen of 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Lincoln understood that the trials that America was facing were not physical, but spiritual. He understood that the solution was not a physical solution, but a spiritual solution. And through multiple proclamations... 
Lincoln declared days of prayer and fasting. Um, I won't take the time to read them, but um, clearly where he called upon the people to call upon the God of our nation, the God of the Holy Scriptures, to have mercy on our land. Well, in similar manner, we today are at a spiritual crossroads. And it is important for us to realize that whether we have a leader calling us to that or not, we need to give ourselves for prayer and fasting. I mean, in just several moments, we'll be going downstairs and celebrating the birth of a a young boy. What are we passing on to our children and grandchildren? What are we doing about it? I mean, it's easy for us to just go on as though everything is normal. It's not normal. And we are in desperate need. America has been drugged at the cup of secularism, a false and wicked religion. Articulated in the Humanist Manifesto, a creed that denied supernatural revelation, and so the revelation it denied of God in Jesus Christ. The religion, as it was called in the Humanist Manifesto, was imposed by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1863 in an 8-to-1 decision that removed the Bible as a textbook, as a regular diet from the school system. The lone dissenting justice, Justice Potter Stewart prophesied, The decision to remove the Bible from our schools led not to true neutrality with respect to religion, but to the establishment of the religion of secularism. That proud and tragic decision has given birth to a complete moral breakdown in America. There are many, many contributing factors to it. But Solomon said in Proverbs 29, where there is no revelation of the Word of God, the people cast off restraint. But blessed is the one who heeds wisdom's instruction. Where there is no revelation of God, the people cast off restraint. We we have cast off restraint Financially, we have cast off restraint. Morally, we have cast off restraint in every area that we can imagine. And it's evidence of the judgment of God. Where there is no revelation of Jesus Christ, where there is no commitment to the Word of God, restraint is cast off. April 28th, the Supreme Court is scheduled to hear the arguments regarding same-sex marriage in, in our nation. Understand, God defines sin. The Supreme Court does not. And it doesn't matter what the Supreme Court decides. They legalized abortion. 
but it didn't change the fact of what abortion is. Something can be legal, but it is still a sin. And regardless of what the Supreme Court decides, and honestly speaking, I don't have, uh, I know God can rule. I don't have a lot of hope in them coming down on the right side other than a miracle of God's intervention. But even that, that's not going to change if we get a favorable decision or unfavorable. It's not going to change um, what is going on in our nation. Long before this has come up, in, in many circles, in often Christian circles, we have already destroyed the institution of marriage through undermining God's standards and principles. But the bottom line is, regardless of what goes on around us, God marks in His book and collects in His bottle the cries of those that cry out to Him for mercy. And God says that He marks down those that came before Him and pleaded with Him for mercy. I believe we ought to pray for certainly our elected officials. The Bible commands us to do that. But I also believe that, that we really need to pray for a spiritual awakening among God's people. That that's the heart of the matter. And, and that not just in collective prayer times, but... Um, gathering together with others to pray, and in our own personal prayer times, um, gathering together to to spend time in prayer. Um, regarding the Supreme Court hearing a week from Tuesday, uh, there are being filed amicus briefs to the to the court. Uh, an amicus brief is a document that is filed in court by someone that is not directly related to the case, but may have information that could be um, helpful to the court. There has been amicus briefs filed opposing God's standard of marriage. There is now a movement. That that brief was filed with 3,000 um, people on it. There is now a movement to file a amicus brief to be, come before the, con, the court um, that they would read that defends marriage as God-given between one man and one woman. On the back table, there is a, a or it's in the, above the table, a little sheet where you can go to a web page and you can uh, sign your name for that so that um, we could have hundreds of thousands of people on this amicus brief. That's one basic thing you can do. But even more important, as I said, is that we give ourselves to prayer. This last week, um, or a week ago, in the House of Representatives, 
Um, someone opened the House of Representatives in prayer that prayed to the earth and the fire and the wind and the water and the rain. Do you understand? Let me read to you the preamble of the Iowa Constitution. We, the people of the state of Iowa, grateful to the supreme being for the blessings hitherto enjoyed, and feeling our dependence on Him for a continuation of those blessings, do order and establish a free and independent government by the name of the state of Iowa. It doesn't leave any wiggle room for who gave us what we have. And rather than getting angry at darkness for being dark, we need to go back and trim our lights and let the light shine. It ought to be a reminder to us and it ought to be a, a rebuke to us that this is where we are today. And it ought to cause us to, to fall on our face before God and cry out to Him and say, God, we certainly do deserve Your judgments. But would You in Your mercies bring a working of revival that the light would shine brighter than ever? in these last days. And that having done all, we would stand. The last thing we want to do is is to answer before God for this great privilege of being citizens of this nation and citizens of this state to answer to God that what you you would not come and ask me for mercy? These aren't days for us to wring our hands that there is no hope. God is in control. And in the midst of judgment, God still is honored. And we can be instruments to that end. But I believe it is imperative for us to collectively and corporately cry out to God. I believe it is... um, Important for us to to understand. Um, we sing it often. My hope is in the Lord. How is it manifested that our hope is in the Lord? Not just for salvation, but for day-to-day sustenance and provision. I'm going to ask us here in just a moment to... Go before God in prayer, and I, I, I'm asking you as, as God directs to lead out in prayer. And, and I'd ask if you pray, if you'd speak up so that we can pray together with you. Um, as God's Spirit directs you to pray, man or woman or young person, um, we need to cry out to God. And, Not just here, but we need to cast our dependence upon God. There's not a place, we don't have the time, there's not a place that you look that you can be really encouraged that things are moving in the right direction unless you look to God. 
And in Christ, we are encouraged. But as Tocqueville said, the thing that made America great, America is great, he said, because America is godly. And as Lincoln cried out for us to fast and pray in the days of crisis, and as Jonah cried out to Nineveh, for judgment and warning. And as Naaman cried out to Nineveh 150 years later, it is important that we cry out to God. So I'm going to ask us to go to prayer now and um, maybe just if someone could shut off the air conditioner so that we wouldn't have to compete with that, um, we'd appreciate that. And... Um, I invite you to pray silently and as God leads, to lead out in prayer. Let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that You are the governor of nations. And we acknowledge that You have abundantly Shed Your grace on this land. And Lord, we bow before You tonight in shame. We bow before You tonight in a sense of brokenness that we as a nation have turned our back on You have turned our back on Your ways, and Lord, we most deservedly deserve Your judgment. But I pray in these days that You would bring a spiritual awakening among Your people. That we would understand the conditions that we are in, and Lord, that we would have a revival of righteousness among Your people that would truly bring light to darkness. That would bring hope to hopelessness. And Lord, I pray that You would bring a working of revival in our land for Your glory. 